Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Welcome to our guests who have joined us today. Glad that you are with us. Let's pray and we'll turn our attention to God's word. God, we thank you and we praise you for your word because it is the truth. We thank you that you are a truthful and faithful God in all that you say and do. Lord, we thank you for this time together this morning in your word, and we pray that you would work now through your Holy Spirit to bring conviction and encouragement and repentance and growth and change in each one of us where it's needed. Lord, we ask and pray for your name to be honored and glorified as well as that of your son, Jesus. We pray these things and ask them in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, lying is one of the most common sins, even in the church, and we just read an example of that from the book of Acts, uh, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Luke tells us uh, that, that great grace was upon the church, and there were not any needy among them because there were several people in the church who had sold houses or property, and they took those proceeds, and they laid it at the feet of the apostles, who then... Uh, gave it to each as they had need. That's Acts chapter 4, verses 33 to 35. And then Luke gives us one specific example of that. He, he tells us that Barnabas did this. He sold some land and he, and he laid it all at the apostles' feet. But enter Ananias and Sapphira at the beginning of chapter 5. They wanted the reputation and attention that that kind of sacrificial giving would give among the people of the church. The only problem is, is they didn't want to actually give that sacrificially. So they cooked up a plan together. They decided that they would sell some property and only give part of the proceeds to the church. Now there's nothing wrong with just giving part of it. It was their land. They could do what they want. They could sell it. They could keep it. They could give whatever amount they chose. That wasn't the issue. The issue was they lied about it. They made it seem like they had given everything when they didn't. Now, we'll come back to them at the end, but I use this as an example to to talk about how lying is so pervasive. Studying this week, lying is cover to cover in the Bible. There are so many illustrations, as we'll see. It's just everywhere, and we're going to talk about that today as we look at the ninth commandment together Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 20. We're looking at the ninth commandment, and the message for us this morning is simple. Be a truthful witness. Be a truthful witness. Tell the truth and do not lie or speak evil of others. Or as the Bible says in Ephesians 4, 25, having put away falsehood, let us speak, uh, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And today we're going to answer four questions related to the ninth commandment. Why is it important? What does it forbid? What does it require? And why do we break it? So let's look at this first question. Why is the ninth commandment so important? Or why does God care so much about lying and about telling the truth? Lying is one of those 10 commandments that I think we put on the list of small sins, not the big ones like murder or adultery, but lying is a big deal for three reasons. First and foremost, Because God says it's wrong. God is the one who sets the standard of right and wrong. Not man, not us. God says you shall not bear false witness. Lying is disobedience to God's moral law. It is a sin and it damages our relationship 
with him. It's first and foremost a sin against God. Second, lying dishonors God and damages our witness to God. Leviticus uh, 19, 11 and 12 says this, You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Whenever we lie, we profane the name of God rather than honoring it. That means that every time we lie, we not only break the ninth commandment, we also break the third commandment at the same time. Lying dishonors God and damages our witness. The Bible tells us to be imitators of God, Ephesians 5.1. God is at work renewing us in his image and his likeness. God calls us to reflect his character as his people. And God cannot and does not lie. Ever. The sum of his word is truth. God's uh, nature is truth. Whereas lying is the devil's nature. He is the, the father of lies, John 8, 44. The great deceiver, Revelation 12, 19. That means when we lie, we are doing the devil's will, the devil's work. But God is faithful and true in dealing with us, and he requires that we be faithful and true in dealing with others. How are people going to believe when we share the gospel or share the truth of the scriptures with them if we are not trustworthy. So we must be truthful to be a faithful witness to God and to honor him. And third, lying is a big deal because of the practical consequences, both for individuals and for the society. Lying is destructive. Lying destroys trust and therefore it destroys relationship and community of all kinds. If you can't trust people, it, it, it destroys, it corrupts, it undermines everything. Business, politics, education, medicine, law, Marriage, family, the church, friendship, everything. The implications of this, of telling the truth or telling lies, is so far-reaching, it impacts every sphere of life. It destroys society. It is not an overstatement to say that all the ills of our culture can be traced back to a rejection of the truth. This command forbids lying and requires the truth in order to protect our relationship with God, our relationship with others, as well as our witness for the glory of God's name in the world. That's why it's a big deal. It's so important. Second, then, how do we break the ninth commandment? What does it forbid? The ninth commandment is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. A lie is purposely misleading someone. Now, in the immediate context here in Deuteronomy, it's a false witness in a court of law where it had the most serious consequences. And they didn't have forensic evidence back then like fingerprints and DNA and surveillance footage and audio recordings and digital pictures and video like we have it today. What that means is that meant almost everything came down to the testimony of witnesses. A false witness could be devastating, even deadly. And that's what happened to Naboth. We've, we've trotted out Naboth. This will be the third time through this series because it's such a bad, a bad situation. But these two worthless men accused Naboth falsely, saying, hey, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside and they stoned him to death. 1 Kings 21.13. Their lies got him killed, their false witness. That's exactly what Jezebel wanted. That was her plan all along. And the wider ancient world 
When people were charged with a crime, they had very little legal protection. But in God's wisdom, it was different among his people. Because humans are sinful and because we're inclined to lie either to hurt other people or to help ourselves, God's law deals strictly with false witness. So we read a moment ago in Deuteronomy 19 verses 15 through 21, it says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days, and the judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you should do to him all that he meant to do to his brother. So shall you purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This passage is a, an expansion, an explanation of the ninth commandment. And we see several principles here required in order to secure the evidence of a witness and also to make sure that justice is done. So first, a single witness is not enough to convict a person. They need two or three witnesses to establish the charge. Verse 15. Second, I want you to notice that the person is presumed innocent until proven guilty. The witnesses are against the accused. They have to prove the charge of their guilt. They have to prove their guilt. They're not trying to prove his innocence, which is different. Proving guilt is different than just asserting someone's guilt. An accusation is not a conviction. It's just an opinion until it's proven true with credible evidence. Third, the third protection was that the witnesses actually have to initiate the punishment for a capital offense. This comes from Deuteronomy 17.7. It says this, The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. Deuteronomy 17.7. That's a significant protection against injustice. It's one thing to accuse someone falsely. It's a whole other thing entirely to have to kill someone, to literally have to be the person to cast the first stone. Fourth, if the, witnesses, or the witness was malicious, if they lied, they accused their brother falsely, then you should do to him as he meant to do to his brother, verses 18 and 19. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That also is a significant protection. It's a strong motivation for the witness to be honest. Because if I get caught lying, they're going to do to me exactly like, like I was trying to do to this other person. Finally, the fifth protection here is uh, the Bible forbids anonymous accusations. A witness has to have accountability. They have to be available for cross-examination, verses 16 through 18. The accused has a right to face their accuser so they can defend themselves. God requires honest, faithful testimony. That requires the opportunity for cross-examination and corroboration of the evidence by multiple witnesses. So, we see here that the ninth commandment forbids false witness in court and so establishes the right to an honest and a fair hearing. A person's reputation, their punishment, possibly even their life is on the line. A bad name could ruin a person's reputation, their family. They could be outcast from their community, making it difficult, if not impossible, for them to live going forward. Because the stakes were so high, these legal checks and balances needed to be met 
in order to uphold justice and protect the innocent from injustice. Now, these biblical principles are the foundation for our own system of justice, which says that a person is innocent until proven guilty. That before a person can be convicted or found guilty, they they must be found guilty beyond all reasonable doubt by a jury who is required to hear both sides of the case with all of the facts available and where each side must submit themselves to cross-examination of the other side. But the courtroom is not the only place that God cares about the truth being upheld. In the ninth commandment, God also forbids all forms of lying in general. As I said a moment ago, a lie is purposefully misleading someone. And there are two main ways that we do that, concealing and falsifying. Concealing is withholding some information, and falsifying is presenting false information as if it's true. And I want to spend some time and dig in here because I think we are so quick to excuse lying. Because we think of lying as just saying something that's false, that's untrue, but we can lie by exaggerating the truth, by withholding part of the truth, or by spinning the truth. And often, we combine all three of those things. So first, there's outright lying. That's just saying something that's not true. We all get that. That's like when Rebecca and, and Jacob lied to Isaac so that Jacob could get the blessing. <laughs> you remember that was, that was an elaborate hoax full of lies. Remember, he, he puts the goat hair on him so he can be hairy like Esau. He puts on uh, Esau's clothing so he can smell like Esau, showing us that we can lie with our actions, not just our words. Then his, his, his dad asks him, point blank, who are you, my son? And Jacob outright lied. I am Esau, your firstborn. Lie. I brought you some of my game. Lie. How did you find it so fast? The Lord granted me success. Lie. It's just lie after lie after lie, showing that one lie often leads to another, adding more lies to keep the story going and not be discovered. Did Jacob become Esau because he put on his brother's clothes and said he was so? No, we immediately see that that is ridiculous. He was lying. In a similar way, the transgender movement is completely built on lies. This too is an elaborate hoax full of lies. It is a lie that there are more than two genders. It's just male and female. It's a lie that a man can become a woman or vice versa. Changing your clothes and declaring that you're a woman does not make it so. Men who pretend to be women are lying, first to themselves and then to everyone else. It's an outright lie that men can get pregnant. The term birthing persons is a lie. It is hiding the truth that only women can have babies. It is a lie that hormone blockers and reassignment surgeries have no negative impact on people or that they fix gender dysphoria. The truth is they're devastating. The truth is that most gender dysphoria resolves naturally after puberty, that much of this is a social phenomenon. This positive reinforcement is driving this. That's the truth. The true and true gender dysphoria is a mental illness, and we should compassionately treat people to help bring their mind in line with their bodies, not the other way around. Going along with lies is a lie, and it doesn't help. Now, there are other forms of lying, like using exaggeration to deceive. Exaggeration is stretching the truth, emphasizing certain things to make ourselves look good or other people look bad or worse than they really are. 
This is like when Satan exaggerated God's restrictions, saying, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden, Genesis 3.1. The devil exaggerated what God forbids to cast doubt on God's goodness and his abundant provision. He's trying to make God look worse than he is. <laughs> we lie by exaggeration all the time. Fishermen do this. <laughs> The fish was this big. No, no, it was this big. No, it was, it was this big. It was amazing. Wow, what kind of fish was it? It was a sunfish. <laughs> we exaggerate other people's failures to put them in a negative light. We exaggerate our own actions, our good, to put ourselves in a positive light. Flattery fits into this category of lying by exaggeration. Flattery is exaggerating in a positive way. It's still lying, though, if what you're saying is not true, and often it has an ulterior motive, trying to get something in return, like a person's approval or affirmation. Look, compliments and encouragements are great. Just make sure that you mean everything that you say. Then there are half-truths. This is where you withhold or leave out some of the truth so that what you say might technically be true, but you still intend to deceive somebody by leaving out certain details, like when Abraham and Sarah lied to Pharaoh and later on to Abimelech, saying that they were brother and sister, Genesis 12 and Genesis 20. Abraham told Abimelech when he asked him, like, why did you do this? He said, I did it because I thought, you know what, there's no fear of God (laughs) at all in this place, and they're going to kill me because of my wife, because she's so beautiful. Besides, this is what he says in verse 12, Genesis 20, 12, besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Abraham and Sarah lied with a half-truth. They purposely left out a key piece of information, that they're husband and wife as well. And we often lie by leaving out key information, not telling the whole truth, just part of it. This is happening right now in our culture with monkeypox. Some officials in the medical and political world, they want to claim that this is a a public health crisis for all people, but they're often downplaying or leaving out a key piece of information. The New England Journal of Medicine that studied this across 16 countries has shown that 98% of the cases are in gay men. 95% of the spread is through homosexual activity. Al Mohler drew attention to this this week in, in in his briefing. One author for NPR wrote this, Quote, be honest, but avoid emphasizing one group's risk over another, experts say. End quote. But that's lying. You can't be honest and leave out the key fact that 98% of the cases are in gay men. Why do they want to leave out that fact? Because they want to, quote, reduce stigma. But that is, as Moeller put it, not medical advice, but moral evasion. This is a great example of lying by concealing part of the truth. Now, we know it's wrong when they do it, but it's just as wrong when you and I do it. Amen? If you can't say amen, as what he says, you ought to say ouch. We omit part of the truth to cast a situation or another person or ourselves in a certain light, whether it's good or bad. That's lying. It's breaking the ninth commandment. That leads to another type of lying, which is spin. The ninth commandment forbids twisting people's words, taking them out of context, misrepresenting them to put a certain spin on things. Man, this is so easy to do. We do it without even thinking about it. It tells us that if we're going to speak the truth, we're going to have to work at it. Lying is what comes naturally to us. 
not speaking the truth. We are masters at retelling a story so that we're the good guy and the other person is the bad guy. And probably one of the most pathetic and sort of comical examples is after Aaron makes the golden calf and he tells Moses, they brought me gold, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Like, really, Aaron? Really? That's how that went down? That's putting a certain spin on that story. We're so used to massaging the truth for our own advantage. We emphasize what others did wrong. We minimize our own wrong. We leave out information. We, we give our own interpretation of things as if it's fact. We present our assumptions as if they're facts. Spin is not something that just the media and politicians do. We all do it. We all spin. And it might be the most common way of lying. So the ninth commandment forbids all forms of lying. Third, the ninth commandment also forbids gossip and slander. Exodus 23.1 puts it this way. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. There are two ways to gossip. The first one we all know about, right? Like you, you share a rumor or report that is unsubstantiated, can't be substantiated. That's gossip. But there's another way to gossip. You can gossip by sharing a true report unnecessarily. In other words, even if something is true, it doesn't mean you should share it. Ask yourself, would the person I'm talking about be happy if I share this information, even if it's true? Of course, that's not really an issue with good news unless they told you not to share it. This is really about sharing negative things, you know, about, about bad reports. Uh, people love to hear dirt on other people. We have an appetite for juicy gossip. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down to the inner parts of the body, Proverbs 18, 8. A slander is talking about people in a way that damages their reputation. It discredits, it defames their good name. Whether you do it by outright lies, by exaggeration, by half-truths, by spinning, it doesn't matter. It's slander. The person's mistakes are discussed in minute detail. The worst motives are assumed about them and attributed to them. And not all gossip and slander is based on lies, but much of it is. It's often based on hearsay or rumor or exaggeration or spin. So you've got to ask yourself, is what I'm saying wholly true? Am I exaggerating? Am I making assumptions here and treating it as if it's fact? And even if it's true, is it really necessary to share it in this conversation with this other person? And would I say it this way if that person were standing here listening to what I'm saying? On the flip side, listening to gossip and slander is also wrong. We shouldn't jump to conclusions about people or form a judgment without all the facts, but that's exactly what gossip and slander often forces us to do. Remember the principle of being a faithful witness. Innocent until proven guilty. Innocent until proven guilty. Is that how we treat gossip and slander? When we hear a report about a brother or sister, do we immediately presume their innocence? Or their guilt. Often we just jump right away to believe what we hear and presume their guilt. But we should want to hear both sides and get all the facts before we draw a conclusion. The problem is victims of gossip and slander rarely, if ever, often never get a chance to defend themselves, which violates the principle of justice that both sides be heard. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Proverbs eighteen seventeen. So what do we do if someone comes to us and starts to gossip or wants to start slandering someone? I think this is the one time that it's okay to interrupt. 
You should say something like, you know what, I'm not sure we should be talking about this. Let's talk about something else. Do the courageous thing and cut it off or exit the conversation. I want to give a couple caveats here, and I, I'm here I'm indebted to Doug Wilson and Randy Booth in their book, A Justice Primer, which I would recommend reading. First, if you're telling a story in good humor or as a joke, that is not breaking the ninth commandment because there's no intention to deceive. We don't have to get rid of jokes, figures of speech, parables, fictional stories, poetry, metaphors, and so forth. Those things do not violate the ninth commandment because there is no intention to deceive. And most people understand the distinction in these forms of communication. Now, a caricature, which is a gross exaggeration, can actually be an excellent way of communicating the truth. It's when we exaggerate in a way that people don't know, don't realize what we're doing. We're trying to pass on our exaggeration as the truth. We have an intention to deceive that we're lying. Second, deception is not a problem in a just war. Just like we drew a distinction between murder and lawful killing, we draw a distinction between lying and lawful deception. It's not wrong for the Ten Boom family who lied to the Nazis to protect Jews from being captured and murdered. It was not wrong for the Hebrew midwives to deceive Pharaoh about their failure to commit infanticide and mass murder for him. In fact, God commended them for it. While Israel is at war with Jericho, it was not wrong for Rahab who joined the Israelites to give cover for the spies. In fact, it was that act of faith that justified her. Just like it's not wrong to disguise a soldier or a tank with camouflage pretending to be a bush. None of those things is a violation of the ninth commandment. God hates people who lie, who sow discord or division, Proverbs 6, 19, who deceive in order to lead people astray. In any context, marriage, family, church, society, business, whatever it is. So the ninth commandment, it forbids uh, false testimony in a court of law. It forbids all forms of lying. It forbids gossip and slander. That leads to the third question, what does it require? How do we keep the ninth commandment? In a word, faithfulness. Faithfulness to God and man in word and deed. Proverbs 14.5 is helpful for us here. It says this, a faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. So the opposite of a false witness is a faithful witness, one who does not lie, but who speaks the truth. So the ninth commandment, if we're going to be a faithful witness, it requires telling the truth, loving the truth, upholding the truth in everything that we say and do. What does that involve? Practicing the truth without deceit means speaking the truth plainly. Don't lie. Tell the truth. Starting with telling yourself the truth. That requires being in God's word. It also requires not feeding yourself these assumptions that you're making about someone else as fact. Don't keep repeating these assumptions to yourself. You could be lying to yourself. And of course, speaking the truth and being honest with other people. Being honest with God in your prayers. And how many of our prayers, they're just not honest. So be honest to God. Be honest with your fellow man. It means thinking the best about people rather than assuming the worst about them, giving them the benefit of the doubt, refusing, again, to say things to yourself or to others that aren't true. It means not listening to gossip or defending people when they're being unfairly maligned. It means speaking the truth in love. Let me emphasize, in love. 
right? It's not to tear somebody down, but to help build them up in the faith. Not just exhorting someone or rebuking someone who is wayward, but also speaking the truth to someone who's believing a lie, who maybe has been fed a lie by the devil and they're believing that lie. Speak the truth to them and help them see the truth. It also means standing up for truth in the wider world, not giving in, not staying silent, not participating in the lies of our culture. It is not okay for a Christian to use incorrect pronouns. Not only is that a lie, but it also strengthens somebody else in a lie. What does the ninth commandment require? Faithfulness, upholding the truth in everything that you say and do. So for businessmen, that means dealing honestly with people. In your advertising, in your product sales, in all of your practices, everything you do in your business. For professors, it means academic integrity and intellectual honesty. For politicians, it means being honest about your record, about your opponent, about the promises that you're making. For journalists, it means getting the story straight and reporting on the truth, not just pushing the narrative that you want to push. For pastors, it means preaching the truth from God's word in season and out of season, not just telling people what they want to hear, no matter what the consequences of that might be. God says, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth. But what about in your marriage? What about in your family? What about what you tell your parents? We need to speak the truth plainly in these relationships as well. Are you lying to your spouse or your kids about something? Are you lying to your parents about something? Are you concealing the truth so that you can lie about something? Speak the truth. What about how we talk about people in the church? I think maybe we'll just let that one sit there for a minute. When you tell stories, are you exaggerating Are you telling half-truths? Are you spinning things for your own advantage or someone else's disadvantage? Be a faithful witness, someone who does not lie but speaks the truth. Rather than gossip and and slander, we should do what we can to guard and advance our neighbor's good name, as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. We do that by avoiding gossip and slander, refraining from rash judgments, and where possible, defending a person's reputation. I have a friend who recently defended their neighbor's reputation. Some of their neighbors were gathered out on the street and they were talking about this particular neighbor. And my friend said, wait, hold on a minute. I know them. I know the circumstances. Let me explain. And he set this story straight. He spoke up to defend his neighbor's good name. That is obeying or keeping the ninth commandment. Obviously, that doesn't mean excusing or covering up serious Sin, but we should give people the benefit of the doubt, not participate in malicious talk, not jump to rash judgments about people without hearing both sides. Of all the people in the world, Christians should be the most truth loving, truth seeking, truth speaking people on the planet. I love the Heidelberg Catechism, it gives a fantastic summary of the ninth commandment. It asks, What's the aim of the ninth commandment? Answer, that I never give false testimony against anyone. Twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. Rather, in court and everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are the very devices the devil uses, and they would call down on me God's intense wrath. I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it, and I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. This leads to the last 
question, which I will conclude with today. Why do we break the ninth commandment? Why do we lie? I'm hoping that at this point in our sermon series through the Ten Commandments, you already know the answer to this question. The answer is, is because we have a heart problem. All along, we've been seeing how God demands obedience from the heart. And that's where the problem needs to be dealt with, our heart, through confession, repentance, and faith. Praying for God to help change us or help us to tell the truth. Jesus said, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, those are the sixth commandment, adultery, sexual immorality, seventh commandment, theft, eighth commandment, false witness, slander, ninth commandment. Lying is a heart problem. Let me try to unpack this a little bit. We're, we are greedy or selfish, and so we lie to get something that we want, like Jacob lying to get the blessing, lacking faith in God's provision. Or we have hatred or anger or bitterness towards someone, and so we slander others, lacking faith in God's justice. Or we have a corrupt pleasure in collecting and airing people's dirty laundry, so we gossip, lacking faith in God's mercy. We desire people's approval, and so we're willing to lie in order to make ourselves look good or gain acceptance, or we're proud, so we lie in order to save face, lacking faith in God's approval of us. We're afraid of punishment, which is probably the most common reason people lie, so we lie to protect ourselves, lacking faith in God's grace and forgiveness for us. And these are just examples. There are lots of other motives that we could share as examples, but they show that lying originates in our hearts with some kind of sin and some lack of faith in God. The problem is our hearts are sinful. We saw this in Ananias and Sapphira. They lied, making it seem like they gave everything when they didn't. Listen to what Peter says to Ananias. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. See, the lie originated in his heart, filled by Satan, the father of lies. Remember, every lie is doing the devil's will rather than God's. And every lie is not merely to men. It's first and foremost a sin against God. That's why it's such a big deal. Ananias heard this. He dropped dead on the spot, verse 5. They took away his body. Three hours later, his wife comes in. Peter gives her a chance to be honest. But she also lied and she also died. Verses 7 through 10. And we're told twice in this story, great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard these things. Verse 5 and verse 11. The punishment was swift and severe. And I think when we read this story, we ask the question, was that a fair punishment? That doesn't seem fair. Asking that question shows our low view of the seriousness of lying, first of all. Second, asking God to treat us fairly is always dangerous. It'd be fair for God to send us all to hell for our sins. That's fair. If he did that, we couldn't say anything about God being unjust or unfair. We don't deserve anything better. And Revelation 21.8 says that the portion of all liars will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Only those who speak the truth are going to enter God's kingdom. 
No wonder great fear came on all of them. Not only because this is a picture, a glimpse of God's judgment, but they realized they're all guilty. They've all lied. And so have you and I. We all are guilty, just like they are. But praise God, He's not only just, He's not only fair, He's also gracious. And God hates it when we lie to make ourselves look more righteous than we are, like Ananias and Sapphira did. The truth is, we're all so unrighteous, so wicked, so sinful, that we could never be saved without the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ. He took the punishment that we deserve for our sins, including all of our lies, so that we don't have to. That's not fair. That's grace. That is the totally undeserved overwhelming, immeasurable riches of God's grace. It's our only hope of salvation. Now, for those of us who have broken the ninth commandment, and that's all of us, there's forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ for all of our lying, our hypocrisy, our gossip, our slander, forgiveness for all of our half-truths and exaggeration and spin We're unable to keep this command just like we're unable to keep the others. That's not an excuse. It establishes our guilt, but there's hope in Jesus Christ. The riches of God's grace are available for you. It's only when we tell the truth about our sin can we see our great need for a Savior. Confession is the first step in coming to Jesus Christ and being saved. Turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ to save you. He will. That's why he came. Only when we tell the truth about our sin do we begin to see the greatness of God's love and grace toward us in Jesus Christ. Only when we tell the truth about our sin will we then give the proper praise and thanks And glory to God for what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. And only when we're honest about our sin can we begin then to grow in God's grace and true righteousness and holiness. No Christian grows in the faith by pretending. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is why Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you for the grace that you have lavished on us in your Son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would help us as individuals, as families, as as husband and wife, as a church, to speak the truth to be faithful, to be truthful witnesses, to uphold the truth in everything that we say and do. God, would you give us the courage to repent where needed, first to you and then to others that we may have been lying to, God. Would you help us to confess? Would you help us to trust in this great grace and forgiveness that we have in you? Would you help us to walk in the truth? Help us to uphold the truth. And we ask and we pray that you'd help us do this, not just for our good, but for your glory ultimately. We ask it and we pray it in Jesus' name.
And all God's people said, Amen.